Let me tell you a story about Rick. Rick was, a, was really a, a faithful guy at trying to share his story of faith uh, at, with a skeptical friend that he worked with, and it seemed that this friend really had it in for churches in general and preachers in particular. Every time Rick talked to him, he always brought up the same objection, that religion is just one big money racket, and the most preachers are in it just to make a quick buck. And as proof, he offered the accusation that Billy Graham and some other celebrity preachers were all millionaires. And when Rick protested that not all pastors were wealthy, his friend was not convinced. It frustrated Rick to no end, but the premise amuses me. In the first place, I don't know a lot about Billy Graham's finances or any of the other celebrity preachers, but even granting the fact that a few pastors who have very large ministries might be considered wealthy, I know for a fact that most pastors aren't anywhere close. Being a millionaire is not something that most of us can be con uh, con uh, accused of. Just the opposite is more likely true. The biggest share of churches in this country are small, under 100 members, like 80-some percent of all the churches in this country. And a lot of pastors I know work for very modest salaries, and some even uh, have a part-time job on the side. But love of money has always been one excuse that critics have used and thrown at the church. So it's easy to generalize, but difficult to refute. And if you search long enough, you can eventually find a preacher who got caught with his hand in the till or wanted his congregation to buy him a new Gulfstream jet. From the earliest times, there have always been a few money grubbers in the ministry, and you can find them in any business. All of this makes most pastors uh, hesitant to preach about money or even to be honest about the church's financial needs because skeptics and doubters unite to make preaching on giving very difficult even in the best of circumstances. However, as I told you last week, our church has been blessed by God financially in recent years. The leaders of this congregation are committed to being upfront with you about our needs. And our intention is always to be transparent, to lay out our hopes and dreams and needs and plans along with biblical teaching on giving. And we trust that you, God's people, will consider those needs and respond to the teaching and pray about your response and act according as God's Holy Spirit leads you. Now that's our plan. It's not high pressure, it's not panic driven. We feel entirely confident that in the end, God will provide all the funding necessary for this church to continue to thrive and all our ministries continue to make an impact uh, in the kingdom. Today I want to focus our attention on a major Christian teaching that's found in the Bible called grace giving. And we read about it in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9. I want to talk for a moment about some background to this teaching. The believers in and around Jerusalem at this time had fallen on hard times. They were in desperate straits. They had very little money. They had very little food. They had a great deal of fear. The Apostle Paul took up their case as his own, and he traveled among the churches in Turkey and in Greece, raising money for these poor saints in Jerusalem. Now, the church at Corinth, in a burst of energy and excitement and zeal, made a very large and generous pledge. But for some reason or other, they had never made good on their promise. And now, 
Paul, like any good fundraiser, writes them a follow-up letter to urge them and go ahead and make your gift now. For two chapters, he uses every motivational argument in the book. He tries to challenge them by comparing them to the Macedonian churches that were very poor but yet gave very generously. He tries to move them by recalling uh, for them the sacrifice that Jesus made. He tries to reassure them of his own integrity in handling the finances. And he tries to excite them with promises of great blessing from God. All of this is a magnificent piece of work. After his lengthy encouragement and teaching, his plea is finished, and now they will either give or they won't. His conscience is entirely clear. The facts are on the table, and like any good speaker, he now goes for that stirring conclusion. In his final appeal for their generosity, begins in chapter six of verse, or verse 6 of chapter 9, and goes through the end of that chapter. And in this section of Scripture, Paul explains two things. First, he explains the principle of Christian giving and then the results of Christian giving. And today we're going to focus on the first part, the principle of Christian giving. And next week we'll look a little bit at the results. We desperately need to know these things. Not because we aren't giving, but because all of us can benefit from the tremendous teaching that Paul says uh, that Paul gives us and the things that he says will happen to those who become generous givers. So I want you to listen again this morning to these words of St. Paul. I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem, for I know how eager you are to help. And I have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you in Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. But I am sending these brothers to be sure you are uh, really ready, as I have been telling them, and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be, be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed, not to mention your embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came to me and found that you weren't ready after all that I've told them. So I thought I would send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready but I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. Now the first principle that the Apostle Paul is laying out here is called the law of the harvest. Remember this, he says, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. There is a similar passage in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, that says, don't be misled, you cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Now here's the difference. In Galatians chapter 6, what we are reading is, what you reap is what you sow. What you're going to reap, what you're going to harvest, is what you sow. Plant beans and you get beans. Plant corn, you get corn, not watermelon. What you reap is what you sow. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it makes a little bit of a different point. It says, how you sow is how you reap. You sow a little, you reap a little. If you sow a lot, you're going to reap a lot. Any farmer knows that at planting time, you know, it really requires an act of faith. You take your seed, you put it in the ground, you cover it up. You see, you can't see a thing happening. 
One day passes, nothing. Two, three days pass, nothing. A week passes, still nothing. And to the untrained eye, it seems like all of your planting was for nothing. Now the novice may be tempted to think, I wasted my time. Maybe I shouldn't have planted as much as I did. And it's always that way. When you sow, you plant the seed, and you wait. Once the seed is in the ground, it's too late to change your mind. But if you wait long enough, the harvest does come. And then you're glad that you planted as much as you did. So it is with giving to God. It may seem financially impossible for for us to fill out that estimate of giving card. To give on a regular basis. After all, you've got bills to pay. You've got a big mortgage. You've got car payments. You've got dental bills, school bills, clothes to buy, child support payments to make, groceries to buy. Your youngest daughter needs a new dress, and the poodle needs a pedicure. You've got things, you've got bills to pay. It looks impossible. You want to give to God, but it just seems like you're throwing seed on the ground. Maybe you should hold back. Maybe you should just wait. Maybe you should give when you get that you know, next raise, or that better job, or when your spouse takes a second job. Uh, but then comes the harvest. And you see, this is where the principle comes into play. How you sow is how you reap. If you didn't scatter very much seed, you won't have very much to harvest, but if you sowed a lot of seed and spread it around with a generous and glad heart, what a good harvest you'll have. It's, you know, it's great to live on a farm at harvest time. All the work of the year begins to pay off. Back from the field comes truckloads of uh, corn and wheat and other stuff, and you don't regret all that seed that you planted when it comes harvest time. And it's really a great principle for us to learn. What we give, we end up receiving. A generous person receives blessings from God all out of proportion to what we've sown. You see, God will be no one's debtor. When you dare to become a generous giver, God himself is the one who pays you back. That's exactly what Jesus said when he, when he, uh, meant when he said, give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full but not just in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured out into your lap. Proverbs 19.17 teaches the same truth, but in other words, if you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord, and it is he that will repay you. God himself will repay you for your generous giving to meet genuine human need. Now, there's two reasons why we find this teaching hard to accept. One is we hear a lot of extremist teaching in the marketplace. You may be familiar with a few television preachers who take this truth and turn it into a surefire way of, to be financially prosperous. Give $100 and God will automatically give you 1000 back. Name it, claim it, it's yours. That teaching is deceiving because it elevates money far above its importance and it devalues God by turning God into some kind of celestial slot machine. It reduces giving purely to a mathematical formula. Put so much in, you're gonna get so much out, and in the end, it leads to selfish giving instead of to grace giving. Because we don't wanna associate with that teaching, we may shy away from the true teaching of scripture, but my encouragement is this, don't let some extremist teaching rob you of what God's word really teaches. The second uh, reason that we kind of shy away is because we lack trust in God. 
You know, down deep in our hearts, I think many of us fear that God won't hold up his end of the bargain. And we fear that if we begin to give generously, we won't be able to pay our bills. We're going to go broke. We'll be penniless. We'll be homeless. We'll be helpless. We'll be roaming the streets in our rags and tin cup. So instead of giving generously, too many churchgoers tend to give the least amount possible. Just enough to salve their conscience, but not enough to be a real sacrifice. And as a result, when the harvest comes, they miss out on the blessings of God. Now the principle of the harvest is when you give, you end up receiving. St. Paul then immediately explains how this truth works in the area of Christian giving. He says, you must each decide in your own heart how much to give. And don't, be reluct- don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all that you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor, and their good deeds will be remembered forever. So here in verse 7, Paul tells us four things about giving. First, that it's it's deeply personal. You must each decide in your own heart how much to give. Giving is an individual decision between us and God. It doesn't matter what anyone else gives. It doesn't matter how much or how little. We aren't to worry about that since giving is always personal. We can't pass that responsibility off on other people. But each of us have to decide in our own heart whether or not we're going to take that step of faith. Secondly, it needs to be deliberate. Paul says, decide. Decide in your heart. No one ever became a generous giver by accident. It's not something we slide into. It's a choice we make. And giving is a little bit like farming. The seed doesn't plant itself. We never learn to tithe. We never learn to be a generous giver until we decide to start moving in that direction. Doesn't happen any other way. I recently ran across a story of a young woman whose personal life was was undergoing a tremendous difficulty. And she told her pastor that last year she had made up her mind that this year she was going to give to God. And she was going to be a generous giver. That was her goal. And God began to speak to her, not about just tithing 10% of her income, but 20%. Now, in the midst of a great deal of turmoil in her life, and in the midst of a great deal of other financial difficulties, she decided to give to God first, the first 20% of her income. No one told her to do that. That's what she believed God was asking her to do. And she was afraid to say anything about it because she knew that even her friends would think she was a crazy woman. But several months later, her face shone with the joy of of the Lord. Why? Because when she added up her income for the year, and in the midst of great turmoil in her family, she she discovered that somehow she had ended up making about $12,000 more than she had the year before. How did it happen? It wasn't her planning. It was God, who always takes the side of those who dare to take that step of faith. Now third, Paul says it should be done freely. Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Here's where so many of us, I think, stumble. Too many of us give to God, but we wish that we didn't have to. We may give to God, we may write that check, we may uh, make a commitment, but we somehow deep down inside wish we didn't have to. 
Perhaps you've heard the story of the, the miserly man who mistakenly dropped a $20 bill one day in the offering plate when actually he had only intended to give five. And after the service, when he noticed that his $20 bill was gone uh, from his wallet, his wife, he said to his wife, at least I'll get credit for $20. <laughs> she said, no, dear, it doesn't work that way. The Lord knows your heart. He's only giving you credit for five. <laughs> See, what we give grudgingly is like never giving at all. Seed planted under pressure is never going to yield a fruitful harvest. And then Paul says, fourth, it should be cheerful. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. The Greek word there is hilaros, from which we get the English word hilarious. It means cheerful, glad, happy. It's a great truth. It's not just how much we give, it's how we give. How we give that matters to God. Keep it in balance. How much we give is important, but our heart attitude, how we give is really what's most important in God's eyes. If we give but wish we really didn't have to, we have already lost the blessing. Some time ago, I ran across a letter written by a church member to his pastor, and the pastor was Dr. Charles Allen, who was at that time uh, at First United Methodist Church in Houston, Texas. And it was during their stewardship emphasis time. And the letter is kind of amusing, but it says, Dear Dr. Allen, in reply to your request to make a pledge, I wish to inform you that my present condition, the present condition of my bank account, makes it almost impossible. My shattered financial condition is due to federal laws, state laws, county laws, corporation laws, mother-in-law, sister-in-law, and outlaws. And through all of these laws, I am compelled to pay a business tax, an amusement tax, head tax, school tax, gas tax, light tax, water tax, sales tax, and now even my brain is taxed. I am required to get a business license, a dog license, not to mention a marriage license. I'm also required to contribute to every organization or society which some genius is capable of bringing to life, every hospital, charitable institution in the city, including the Red Cross and the Double Cross. For my own safety, I am required to carry life insurance, property insurance, liability insurance, burglary insurance, accident insurance, business insurance, earthquake insurance, unemployment insurance, old age insurance, and fire insurance. I am inspected, expected, disrespected, rejected, dejected, examined, reexamined, informed, reformed, summoned, fined, commanded, and compelled until I provide an inexhaustible supply of money for every known need, desire, and hope of the human race. Simply because I refuse to donate something or other, I am boycotted, talked about, lied about, held up, and held down until I am ruined. And I can tell you honestly that had not all of this happened, I would gladly give to your church. <laughs> See, we all have to do whatever we have to do, but my prayer is that many of us will learn the secret of not only what it means to give, but to be a generous giver, to give to God first. I know that for a lot of people, the thought still remains, but if I give, how am I going to pay my bills? Don't I have to take care of my own needs first? Verse 8 answers those questions and gives us God's part of the bargain. This is a wonderful verse that I think you ought to commit to memory. And it says, and God will generously provide. And God will generously provide all you need then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Let me start with the end of that verse and kind of work backwards. 
God's promise is that we will have everything we need and plenty left over to share with others. What does that mean? Well, in the context, the sharing with others is helping other people. It's giving our money to alleviate suffering, to meeting the physical and spiritual needs of people. That's called mission. It's called outreach beyond ourselves. Now go back to the middle phrase that says you will have everything you need. The Greek text uses a word here that Stoic philosophers use to describe a person who is so detached from the world, so self-controlled that they need nothing at all. They live by themselves and for themselves. And Paul picks up that word and he applies it to the generous giver and he says, God will make you self-sufficient. That means you won't depend on your circumstances in life for happiness. You won't get hooked on material things as your standard of living. The self-sufficient Christian is the one who has not directed their life toward amassing things, uh, but alleviating needs. They are independent of circumstances and totally dependent on God. Now we go back to the beginning of the verse, and God will generously provide all that you need. You see, it's not up to us. That's the secret. It is God's grace. It is God who is able to give us everything that we need so that we can truly be self-sufficient and still have an abundance left over to give to others. So the big question for me is, how do we turn this verse loose in our own life? And the simple answer is, we practice generosity. If we truly want to give, God will make it possible. He'll give us more than enough to give to others, but it starts with us. And if we truly want to be a generous giver, we have to let God make that possible in us. The proof is in verse 9, which is a quotation from Psalm 112. As the scriptures say, they share freely and and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. God remembers what a righteous person does, and he will never forget our generosity to people in need. Now the passage concludes with just a promise in verses 10 and 11. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when you take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. That's called the law of providence, God's providence. God always provides seed for the sowing and bread for food. It's his nature to care for the planting as well as the harvest. He watches over it from beginning to end, year after year. God does for the farmer, uh, does that for the farmer, and he'll do it for you. He will provide and increase your resources and produce a great harvest of generosity in you. That's the blessing that comes to us when we choose to share with others. When we give, we set in motion a great cycle of God's grace, and God meets our needs, and an abundance comes back to us so that we can share with others, and the harvest is not for us alone. It's to be shared with many, many others. Verse 11 says the very same thing, but in different words. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous, and when you take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. That's God who will work to give us more than we need so that we can share it with others, and the end result is there are more people giving thanks to God. Think of it this way. When you give generously, three wonderful things happen. The one who receives the gift is blessed because their need is met. Secondly, the one who gives is blessed and an increase of harvest of blessings from God comes our way. 
And third, God himself is glorified as the giver and both the giver and the receiver together give thanks to our Heavenly Father. Let me sum up this whole message in just two sentences of application. And one is, there is no one more tormented in life, I think, than the Christian who cannot trust God with their finances. No one more tormented in this life than a Christian who cannot trust God, and no one happier than the Christian who learns to trust God enough to give what they have been blessed with away. So what kind of sowing have you been doing lately? A little, a lot, hardly any? I challenge you to begin living a life of generosity. Put God to the test and see. He'll meet your needs. Take him at his word, and when you do, I predict two things are gonna happen. One, you will have blessings that begin to overflow in your life. And secondly, you'll have more opportunities to give than you ever had before. You'll have an abundance for your own needs and more to give away. That's, that's the way it works. But don't, you don't have to take my word for that. God invites you to put him to the test. See if he won't come through. Can you trust God with your wallet? That's the big question. You'll never know until you make a decision in your own heart. No one has ever been the loser when they've decided to become a generous giver. Let's pray. Generous God, we are grateful for your word which meets us through these words of long ago that we can read today and apply to our lives. We acknowledge the message of Jesus reflected in this writing of the Apostle Paul to be generous people whose love and service and uh, and giving uh, is without reservation. So equip us today to take from this teaching the initiative to give our very best to you, to take a risk, to trust you to meet all of our needs according to your promises, and this is the, fa this is the faith that you want to reflect as we give ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen.